This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. In this episode of Inside COVID-19, we look at the impact of the pandemic on education and jobs. Coming up is an interview with Professor Michael Lacorda, who chairs the Department of Curriculum Studies at Stellenbosch University. We also speak to Professor Susan Mishi, a professor of health psychology, who is also the director of University College London's Centre for Behavioural Change, about how people worldwide will have to adapt to a COVID-19 safe future that does not destroy economies. And we hear about how pilots in South Africa and other professionals are struggling as the pandemic forces structural changes on the global economy. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. First, the COVID-19 headlines. As of this week, just under 18,800 people had died in South Africa of COVID-19. About 709,000 people have tested positive for the disease. A study by King's College London has found that 1 in 20 people with COVID-19 are likely to have symptoms for 8 weeks or more. The study suggests that long COVID affects around 10% of 18 to 49-year-olds. Public Health England has found that around 10% of COVID-19 cases that were not admitted to hospital have reported symptoms lasting more than 4 weeks. Spain has recorded more than 1 million coronavirus cases, becoming the first Western European country to pass that landmark figure. It is the sixth nation worldwide to report 1 million cases after the US, India, Brazil, Russia and Argentina. Europe has seen a surge in new infections over the last few months, forcing governments to bring in strict new regulations to try and control outbreaks and ensure hospitals do not become overwhelmed, says the BBC. Spain was hit hard by the coronavirus in the first months of the pandemic and brought in some of the strictest measures to tackle it, including banning children from going outside. Like most European countries, the country lessened its regulations as case numbers dropped. Politicians heightened the need to bring back tourists as a way to boost the struggling economy, says the BBC. Trials of AstraZeneca and Oxford University's COVID-19 vaccine will continue following the death of a volunteer in Brazil. Vaccine trials should not be stopped even in the event of death, scientists have said. Dr. Joa Fertosa, 28, is reported to have died from complications of COVID-19 on October 15th. Brazilian newspaper Globo and news agency Bloomberg said he was in the control group and had received a placebo rather than the test vaccine. Reacting to the news, Professor Gareth Williams of the University of Bristol told Mail Online that this is a very powerful message for a need for a vaccine and to carry on with the trial to find out what the answer is. He says the exceptional event could still have occurred had Dr. Fetosa been given the experimental vaccine because no vaccine is 100% effective. Professor Williams, who has written scientific papers on vaccines, says deaths should not stop trials going ahead. Tens of thousands of deaths are now inevitable in a second wave of coronavirus infections sweeping across England because of the failure to contain the virus. This is a warning from a government scientific advisor. John Edmonds, a professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, told MPs on Wednesday that without further measures, England's tiered COVID-19 strategy 
would lead to high numbers of new infections every day, putting the country's National Health Service under strain and driving up the death toll. Edmonds, an epidemiologist, told the joint hearing of the Commons Science and Technology Committee, if you look at where we are now, there is no way we come out of this wave without counting our deaths in the tens of thousands. He says we are already at that point, or getting close to the point, where the health service will be under strain in the next few weeks. Small and medium-sized enterprises have been the lifeblood of the European economy, accounting for more than two-thirds of the workforce. But the results of a recent McKinsey survey conducted in August says that the COVID-19 crisis has hit them hard. Some 70% have said their revenues have declined as a result of the pandemic. One in five is concerned that it might have to default on loans and lay off employees, while 28% fear that they would have to cancel growth projects. More than half feel their businesses may not survive longer than 12 months. Cristiano Ronaldo will miss Juventus Champions League game against Barcelona next week after returning another positive coronavirus test. The Portuguese superstar picked up the virus last week, ruling him out of action for Portugal in the nation's league and forcing him into a period of quarantine. Inside COVID-19 from Business. The long period that schools were closed during the COVID-19 lockdowns created another lost generation for South Africa, with many children not completing their schooling as a result of the lockdown. Linda van Tilburg of BizNews spoke to Professor Michael Lecorder, who chairs the Department of Curriculum Studies at Stellenbosch University. The long period that schools were closed during the COVID-19 lockdown has created another lost generation for South Africa. That is the opinion of Professor Le Cordeur, who chairs the Department of Curriculum Studies at Stellenbosch University. Professor Le Cordeur had estimated that between 30 and 50% of children in the last years of their high schools had not returned this year. He told Business that he was also concerned about the fact that poorer children had fallen further behind. I've been very concerned about the fact that the grade one learners and the other learners in the foundation phase over, but they went back to school so late. You know, they for me, together with the matrix, should have been amongst the first that, that she should have gone back. Because uh, if a child can't read and write properly, he or she will have an advantage for the rest of their school career. So that is very important. And given the fact that they were so long out of school, they are at a very, very huge disadvantage. Unfortunately, this is going to emphasize once again, you know, the disparity between schools, the, the, the more affluent schools and schools in the more poor township areas. And I think that gap has now even widened, well, if it is at all possible, because we are already, you know, the most unequal country in the world, bad as it was, that gap has now widened, and it will take us years to catch up. And so there's a, a huge responsibility on the education department, on educationalists, the whole education fraternity will have to work extremely hard to pull back this backlog that we are we're going to have. And there is no quick fix with things like reading and writing and learning children arithmetic. There's no quick fix. It will take our time and we will, we will have to be very patient. Have we learned anything during the COVID-19 pandemic how technology could help us to speed up this process? 
we now know there are many things that one can do by ways of online teaching. You know, I am at Senate Walsh University and I've been teaching online since April. I have just had a session with my students this morning. So in that case and in that regard, it has been helpful. And once again, it's, it is sad to, to say and to see that while some schools could con- continue with online teaching, some of the other schools could not. And, and some of the kids were just playing around outside and not having access, you know, to, to schooling in these times. So that is something for the education department to consider. Uh, we will also have to, to, to make huge strides forward uh, with online teaching. But having said that, online teaching will always be a supplement to teaching as a whole. I do not foresee that online teaching can replace all teaching in school. Children need social interaction with learners. Children need to learn from an adult in person. Children need to model their own lifestyles on successful peers and successful adults. So online teaching will be a great asset to education, but it will never be able to replace the current education system. It will always be a 50-50, a blended approach as we're moving forward. You've mentioned this, but one thing that the COVID-19 pandemic has emphasized is, as you said, the richer kids had access to iPads and had access to online teaching, but that was really difficult for poorer kids. So the poorer kids are falling further behind now. Yes, and that is the very unfortunate situation, and that is where the the big challenge lies for everybody in in the education fraternity, but especially for the education department. And that is why it is it's so sad that schools were closed down for so. I'm of the opinion that we closed down schools for too long during the month of August. It was apparent to me that things are getting better, and it is also apparent to me that children don't fall sick, you know, in school, so to speak. So I think in future, we need to think about this very carefully. There's one thing that, that I've said, and I've written about this numerous times, and I will say it again. We cannot keep children out of school for too long. Research has proved if you keep children out of school for too long, it is continuously difficult to get them back into school. As we speak here today, I have just spoken to some of my colleagues in school this morning in preparation for this interview that 50% of matrics are back in school in your township schools. And in some places, it is about 70% who are back in school. But the fact of the matter is that there is a huge number of, of learners who have not returned back to school because they have been out of school for too long. And sadly, we have created another lost generation and they are going to become a liability of the state. They will become unemployed. They will not find a job. And the social implications of that uh, is huge and perhaps too much for us as a young democracy to, to handle at this moment. So that means 30 to 50% of township kids did not return to school. Why did they not return? Well, in the main, it is, well, that, that, that is my, my guess. I, I have spoken to some of them. In the main, it is that they feel that 
it is too late. They feel that they have been behind in any case and they feel that they do not have the ability to pull back this huge backlog. Many of them don't have a great self-confidence because emotionally they have been affected to the extent that they have lost confidence in themselves and because of that they have lost confidence in the system. Many of them do not have confidence in their teachers and in their schools. They've been left behind so many times before. What we sometimes do not consider is that there must be trust between a learner and his or her teacher. And if that trust is not there, then then some things go astray. Then you're going to lose the whole idea of education. We need to built on that trust, and that trust gets built over time. You you don't create that within a few days. It takes time to install trust between school and community, between learner and teacher. That, for me, has fallen away. And so we will have to spend a lot of time and energy rebuilding trust and confidence in our school system especially in our poorer communities, because right now they don't trust us as teachers anymore. Hence, they are there outside and they are telling themselves, I can make a living outside of school because look at what has been done there and there and there. And many of them will fall in the trap of unemployment and many of them will eventually end up here in the Western Cape in the gangsters who are actually looking out for these lost generation, to pick them up and to bring them in their system. And it's a very sad situation. And I think as an education fraternity, there is a lot of hard work for us to combat that. What age group are we talking about What you call this another lost generation? I'm especially referring to the, those learners in the FET phase, you know, grade 10, 11 and 12. But also there's a as you know or might not know, is that the dropout rate in grade 9 is very, very big. Almost 30%. It can even be more. If you check the numbers of schools, you will see that learners moving on from grade 9 to grade 10, there is a big, big dropout. And we very much underestimate that dropout rate because there is so much focus on the grade 12 and in matrix and their performance. And so we do not attend to these learners in grade 9 as we should. So yes, I'm talking about 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds who are out there who are not in school at this particular time. And in fact, we will not return to school this year. Hopefully some of them will return next year. But chances are very slim that they will even return. Like I said, I think we have created another lost generation here. This is Linda van Tolberg for Bez News. There appears to be acceptance in the scientific community that the COVID-19 virus will not be eradicated swiftly and we will have to learn to live with it. Bez News spoke to Professor Susan Mishi, a professor of health psychology who is also the director of University College London's Centre for Behaviour Change, about how people worldwide will have to adapt to a COVID-safe future that does not destroy economies. Well, every death is tragic. And 
it's a huge number of people. I think what I would focus on is how many of those were avoidable? What are the lessons we can learn about what hasn't gone well? And how can we go forward in order to minimise the number of deaths in the future? So what can we do? Well, if you look at the countries that have done well, both in terms of minimising deaths and keeping their economies reasonably afloat, there are patterns that you can see. So there are many countries that are actually doing okay at the moment. We have China, Japan, South Korea, Thailand, Vietnam, New Zealand, Uruguay. You look across these countries and what they have in common is that they have very good test, trace and isolate systems that were brought in early on and are working very efficiently with people well supported to isolate. They have good border controls in terms of uh, restricting travel and being very firm about quarantining for those who do come into the country. And then they also have uh, good personal protective behaviours in terms of wearing face masks in appropriate places, social distancing, etc. So if you do these things, you do them well um, and you do them in a consistent way, then it is possible, even with this virus and even without a vaccine, to carry on with life, you know, more or less as usual. You talked about China, but that is a very autocratic system. So it's easy for them to lock down. Does the Western mindset or the mindset of people, I'm specifically referring to South Africa, South Africans are rule breakers. And initially, yes, they did believe everything the government was saying, but trust was eroded over time and they didn't quite believe the government anymore. So all of the countries I've mentioned have got very different economic and political systems. I wouldn't you know, be singling them out to say anything particular about any of them. But I think you're right. I think there's a much more collective approach in those countries. And I think the leadership and the governments are uh, much more trusted. And I think this is a problem that you have in South Africa. And I think it's a problem that we have in the UK. I think it's a problem in the United States and Brazil, in many countries. And I think building up trust in the leadership is really important. I think communities Taking responsibility themselves for keeping themselves and each other safe is really important. And in order to build up trust, governments need to really work with communities, work in partnership, engage communities actively, really listen to them, learn from them about what their challenges and problems are and co-produce, co-create strategies and solutions to problems because those are more likely to be effective And also, if relevant communities have been involved, then they're more likely to take ownership and adhere to them. So what are the steps we need to adopt to make sure that we can contain the virus? We still need people to have an economic life. Absolutely. What's interesting is those countries who've done best to reduce the community transmission of COVID have also done best economically. So the idea that we're pitting health against wealth just doesn't stack up. If we want to protect our economy, we have to protect people because it's only when we get the community transmission down that businesses can feel confident about opening up and staying open, that they can feel confident that consumers are confident to come out and buy and you know, be out of their houses feeling safe. So the same thing applies that I said was necessary to drive community transmission down. These are all the same things that are needed to be able to support as much of the economy opening up as possible. 
I think also we need to have really good vision from governments because sadly, I think this virus is going to be staying with us at certain levels for a long time, if not forever. And I think it does mean that the economy will have to be restructured in order to ensure everybody has jobs. And there'll be certain industries like, you know, some of the hospitality, the entertainment, the aviation industries that won't be as thriving. But then there's so much that needs to be done, for example, in developing uh, a green economy in terms of renewable energy, in terms of houses that are really good in terms of reducing carbon transmission, making cycleways and walkways, making carbon free or carbon reduced cars, etc. So there's plenty to do, but it does need really some foresight and some strategy on behalf of governments to really take responsibility for shifting the economy in a way that means we can have a vibrant economy at the same time as adjusting to life with COVID. What if we adjust to life with COVID? What do you say about some people like Professor Carl Hennigan from Oxford University who says, well, we'll just have to live with it. And there is almost acceptance like we have for the cold viruses every year that, you know, some people might die of it and we need to get on with our lives. Is that too callous an outlook? And do you think that would never psychologically be accepted by any community? We're not talking about some people dying. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people dying if we go down that route. Because, first of all, we don't know about the immunity of this virus. We don't know how long people are immune from it when they have had it. So this immunity, population immunity, as a strategy may be totally ineffective. But even if it were effective, what it means is shielding, basically locking away all those people who are over 60, who have underlying conditions and who, for any other reason, are vulnerable. And certainly in the UK, that's 20 percent of the population, 12 to 20 million people. So that's a real problem. They would all need to be looked after. They would have uh, serious mental health problems for some of them. We also would have a situation in which those people who are most vulnerable, who are the more deprived who black and ethnic minority communities are often in our country, the ones doing the public facing jobs of health services, social care homes, retail delivery. So all the people who are keeping society going would be the ones in the front line of dying or getting a serious illness or disability from this disease. A third problem with this approach is that it's not true that it only attacks and kills the oldest and those who have underlying conditions. It does affect all age groups. And increasingly, there's evidence uh, for what is termed long COVID, that younger people, even if they have symptoms quite mildly, can end up with really debilitating organ damage. Many different organs can be damaged, brains, kidneys, heart, lungs, and also uh, debilitating in terms of uh, long-term fatigue and psychological problems. So we're only scratching the surface about the long-term problems for all age groups. And sadly, this disease has increased inequalities all around the world. Uh, Those people who had least are being affected worse by it. This sort of strategy that you mentioned, the kind of herd immunity strategy, would just make things even more unequal. It would enable 
a few rich people to live in their big mansions, quite well protected, at the expense of, as I said, hundreds of thousands of more deprived people who are actually doing the work in society, dying or become seriously ill. So in the meantime, are you saying we'll have to get used to, well, Europe is going into a winter, the United Kingdom is going into a winter, to children sitting with the windows open at schools, we're all quite far from each other, we wear masks, we wash our hands, and there's that social contact, the clubbing for young people, boisterous students, that is literally flying out the window for a long time. And even if we get a vaccine, it will be only about 50% protection, some scientists say. So are we going to have to get used to being shyer and less close to each other? (laughs) Well, I think we don't have to be shy and we don't have to be emotionally less close to each other. But I think we do need to be much more cognizant about how the virus transmits from one person to another. And it will mean if we are to keep the community transmission rates down, it will mean really thinking about how many people you see for how long, how close are you in terms of your proximity to them? And is it indoors or outdoors? I mean, outdoors is so much more safe than indoors that really, you know, if you can do as much as possible outdoors, you know, that's the way to go. But I would also add that we're not just waiting for vaccines. As time is going on, we're getting better at understanding the disease and developing treatment. So, you know, the more we can stall for time, the more that we will be able to um, get treatments uh, to make the damage less. So, you know, what I'm hoping is that by next summer, we will be in a better place. But I think over these next few months, I think it's going to be very, very tough the world over. But it's one of those things, you know, the old phrase, a stitch in time saves nine. It, it really applies in this case, too. I think if we can really, the governments really take responsibility for learning from the countries that have done this well, um, it will mean restrictions. Um, but if the government can look after people, you know, seriously look after people like they do in some countries, you know, paying proper sick pay, for people have to isolate, giving them accommodation to do so when they need to, then I think people will feel supported enough and trust the government enough that the the whole population and community can come together in terms of, you know, one last push over these next few months to really try and not get this virus running away and uh, causing mayhem, even more mayhem than it's already done. This is Linda von Tolberg for Buzz News. Inside COVID-19 from Buzz News. Coming up, some insights from our partners at Bloomberg on the economy. Wall Street Week contributor and senior executive editor of Bloomberg Economics, Stephanie Flanders, gives us the over and under on getting this fiscal help we need on both sides of the Atlantic. I guess we should we should pause to reflect on the fact that the International Monetary Fund has not historically been a great uh, source of, of fiscal stimulus and, and a booster for fiscal stimulus. Um, you remember even just in the, the last uh, global financial crisis, after supporting um, fiscal action to help economies for the first uh, year or two, um, they were among those who said we should, you know, was in favour of austerity in the Eurozone and elsewhere. So to have the head of the IMF saying, if anything, the danger is too little rather than too much, even as she unveiled a significant uh, rise in debt stocks and borrowing across the world uh, was quite was quite a thing uh, to behold. But of course, it's, it's facing uh, she's reflecting the reality, which is that 
uh, economies are not out of the danger zone. And in fact, if you're certainly if you're sitting in Europe, you feel like you're going back into a very risky period with you know curfews being introduced across France, new tighter restrictions across large parts of the UK. The impact on the economy could be quite profound. So you can't turn off the support yet. So we all are very concerned about the uptick, uh, the surge, if I can put it that way, in the number of cases of COVID-19, certainly in Europe and here in the United States, much of the United States as well. At the same time, the, the, the lethality of it seems to have gone down. Not as many people are hospitalized or dying, are they? Well, it's interesting because that was what was happening in the summer. And I think there was a certain amount of um, uh, complacency even about the rising rates towards the end of the summer because they didn't seem to be accompanied by hospitalization rates. And it's certainly true that in the US particularly, we've got much better at treating. We've seen a very high profile case recently, but we've got much better at treating uh, coronavirus. Actually, across Europe, you are starting to see older people start to get the pop- get COVID again, and that is starting to fill up hospitals again. So I don't, the idea that this is going to be really a much easier thing the second time around is, I think, wishful thinking, although we certainly have a better handle on how to treat it. All the economists seem to agree we need to, to continue, even increase the fiscal stimulus. At the same time, are we putting off the time when there have to be other readjustments made in the economy for the long-term health of the economy? And I'm not talking about cutting back on fiscal stimulus. I'm talking about repurposing people and industries. I mean, you have a wonderful podcast called Stephanomics in which you talk about the jobs. Are we supporting jobs that maybe will go away? Yeah, if I'm allowed to boost for a moment on the Stepanomics podcast, actually this week we had a wonderful piece from Spain, from Cadiz, the southwest of Spain, making addressing exactly that point, which jobs are gone forever and which actually could come back. And there's a shipbuilding industry there that clearly has not come back. Uh, and is, is workers from there have then gone on to, for example, working in airline engineering. Um, now they're or engineering for aircraft, for Airbus, now they're uh, facing the possibility of long-term redundancy and asking themselves, is the airline business going to go the way of shipbuilding? And the honest answer is, for a lot of the economy, we don't know. Even even the changes that we think are going to be permanent, you know, people wanting to work from home or people travelling for work less. In a few years' time, will we will we be will we be laughing at those predictions that the world was going to change? The, what governments shouldn't be doing now is forcing businesses to prejudge what their future business model is going to be. And that probably means giving more support, even if some of it ends up being for jobs that aren't going to last. That was Bloomberg's senior executive editor for economics, Stephanie Flanders. We also spoke to Mr. Brian Vasmuth an executive search specialist, about how nearly all of South Africa's pilots are unemployed and face a very bleak future unless they reinvent themselves. One of the areas that you've been looking at, airlines and pilots, can you just tell us what you are seeing when it comes to pilots who no longer have work? Well, I think background quickly. We know that SAA and SA Express no longer um, operate as such uh, in name. They're still there and still registered as companies but they're not flying. And so SAA has in the uh, order of 650, 680 pilots, if I have my numbers more or less correctly, and then uh, SA Express have uh, in the order of of 170 pilots not flying. So we're talking about around 800 pilots that are there. Uh, There are no pilot jobs in South Africa at the moment. There are two airlines, perhaps two and a half if you like, that are flying, but we have 800 pilots 
who have little chance in the short term and medium term of returning to aviation. It's tragic. And just globally, I mean, do you think there will be any jobs coming up soon? What is your network telling you? Globally, aviation jobs are going to be in demand or they're going to be short. Um, You know, there are not going to be many of them available. That's the one thing. But then you need to understand as well that the South African um, pilots can't fly all over the world. They need to do, in the UK and in Europe, they need to do a specific retraining, specifically on the on the qualific, the academic side of things. In Australia, it's not that difficult, so they can fly there. And then in the Far East, and I'm talking about Singapore, Hong Kong, Korea, there they can fly and they do fly. And in the Middle East, they can fly, and obviously up the, the African continent, they can fly. But if you look at the United States, where flying is likely to pick up quite quickly over time. And then also, if you look at the um, European uh, aviation environment, they can't just go and fly there. They have to do retraining, which takes a hell of an effort and 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 a lot of money. So it's tough for South African pilots. And where are they finding jobs or where are you helping them find jobs? Some of them uh, haven't found jobs yet. Very few of them have found jobs yet. And so I spoke to an airline captain the other day. He's a manager in a in a meat processing environment. I mean, that's the kind of job you know that he's now found. Others are looking for, as I said, logistic jobs and, and so on and so on. So, Jackie, I mean, what we are doing with, with, with the pilots who, who want to become part of the process is to just have them understand, look, these are my qualifications, these are my skills, these are the things that I can do. And then for them to have an understanding of what kind of industries they should approach and then to identify specific companies and specific people in those companies who they would approach. Obviously, I'm doing some work on that in that regard on their behalf as well. So with great frankness, many of them, in fact, the majority of them haven't found work yet. And that brings to a close your Inside COVID-19 podcast from BizNews. This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.